Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Unelected agency officials reportedly impose rules that cost Americans billions of dollars every year. A new bipartisan bill aims to take some power away from federal agencies. Tesla CEO Elon Musk takes aim at the World Economic Forum. Meanwhile, its chairman Klaus Schwab wonders what does it mean to master the future. Over a million less students in public schools, major cities fearing funding cuts. We have analysis on what's behind the shift away from government-run schools. How is the COVID-19 outbreak in China affecting the country's military? While the details remain a mystery, we'll bring you a few clues about what's going on. Some lawmakers want to take away power from federal agencies. They say the individuals on many agencies were not elected and thus should not be able to change federal rules on their own. A group of bipartisan House lawmakers introduced the Ensuring Accountability in Agency Rulemaking Act. They say federal officials belonging to government agencies shouldn't be able to impose billions of dollars of regulatory costs on Americans every year. The main reason for that according to the lawmakers, is because those agency officials are not elected by the people. Representative Ben Klein of Virginia writes, this legislation would require all rules proposed by federal agencies, except in limited circumstances, to be signed and issued by an individual appointed by the president, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate. Fox News reports that the bill comes as a response to a 2019 study by the Pacific Legal Foundation. The study reportedly found that 98% of all rules made by the FDA between 2001 and 2017 were issued illegally. According to the study, that's because they came from non-Senate-confirmed officials. Other agencies reportedly have similar problems. Klein says existing laws are backing the bill up, writing, The Supreme Court held in Buckley v. Vallejo that rulemaking is a significant government power that may be exercised only by officers appointed in accordance with the Constitution's Appointments Clause. The Pacific Legal Foundation study reportedly found that 25 of the FDA's so-called illegally published rules had an economic impact of over $100 million. Klein says rules promulgated by federal agencies effectively hold the same weight as law, and having rules issued by unelected career bureaucrats rather than an individual appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate is unacceptable. This bill seeks to uphold the traditions and values of our republic, and it will ensure there is no question surrounding the legality of rules coming out of our federal agencies. He added that regulation should be made by officials who are accountable to Congress. An appeals court is asking the Florida Supreme Court to define public disturbance. That's so it can decide whether a 2021 anti-riot law in Florida violates the U.S. Constitution. The Combating Violence, Disorder and Looting and Law Enforcement Protection Act, also known as HB1, was signed into law in Florida in 2021. The measure was drafted in response to the riots that erupted across 20 states following the death of George Floyd. Among other things, the law makes it a third-degree felony to cause physical harm to others and, quote, to obstruct traffic during an unpermitted protest, demonstration, or violent or disorderly assembly. A federal court issued a preliminary injunction against the law in September 2021. 
Tesla CEO Elon Musk made a series of quips over the weekend aimed at the World Economic Forum, or WEF. Meanwhile, Chairman Klaus Schwab declared that the summit will focus on redirecting its members to a progressive climate and social justice agenda. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the story. What does it need to master the future? The WEF has been the subject of considerable scorn and criticism for its 2016 ad campaign, which stated, Welcome to 2030. I own nothing, have no privacy, and life has never been better. Many took issue with the organization's attempt to frame a lack of personal ownership and privacy as a positive. Basically, um, you know, their vision is they run everything and everybody else is just like a serf, like a peasant. Critics have also highlighted the WEF's lack of transparency and pushing of the Environmental, Social and Governance, or ESG, agenda. Despite founding an electric vehicle company, Musk is not a fan of ESG. He tweeted that the S in ESG stands for satanic. Musk also referred to the movement as the devil back in November. The Twitter CEO then made light of a video featuring a speech by WEF founder Klaus Schwab. The COVID-19 crisis would be seen in this respect as a small disturbance in comparison to a major cyber attack. Schwab has been criticized for his book, COVID-19, The Great Reset, which advocated for governments around the globe to use the pandemic as an opportunity to, quote, reimagine capitalism. Meanwhile, Schwab kicked off the annual WEF meeting in Davos, Switzerland this week. We could meet at a more challenging time. This year's agenda includes doubling down on the transition to renewable energy and the pushing through of ESG standards. With people beginning to feel the effects of the ESG agenda, there has been increasing resistance to the WEF's global ambitions. Its concerted effort against fossil fuels has led to shortages and price hikes. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis reacted to ESG and the push at the World Economic Forum to go after energy companies. And it's really weakening uh, Western society, Western values, but underlying a lot of that is the CCP. Other WEF agenda items include green jobs and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Here's Sadia Zahidi, managing director of the WEF on CNBC. It's very clear that climate is actually just continuing to grow in severity, and that's really not changing in the 10-year time frame. In related news, EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen discussed green legislation in Davos that would support industry on the road to net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Now on to California. Residents there had to weather a series of storms over the last couple weeks. Heavy rain caused flooding in many parts of the state. Homes have been swept away, roads turned into rivers, and thousands were forced to evacuate. Now the weather is finally forecast to let up this week. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the latest round of tribulations Californians are facing. Roads looked like rivers in San Diego, California on Monday. The state has been battered by a series of severe storms since late last month. A string of atmospheric rivers, storms like rivers in the sky that can carry moisture thousands of miles, have been dumping massive amounts of rain. Small rainstorms lingered on Monday from San Francisco through central California. Water was edging close to Tower Bridge Road in Sacramento. However, Californians might see things starting to dry up this week. 
The National Weather Service says the state should start to see a break from the heavy rain Tuesday, but forecasters warn of possible mud and rock slides in areas with canyons and steep hills. The ground is saturated after three weeks of rain and snow. The record rainfall has soaked California's steep hillsides, causing hundreds of landslides and heightening the threat to communities. This road in Pescadero collapsed over the weekend after days of heavy rainfall. Hillsides left barren by wildfires and drought make it hard for the land to absorb so much water. There have been at least 19 storm-related deaths since the storm started. More than 8 million people were under flood watches Monday night. President Biden approved California's request for a federal disaster declaration on Saturday. Federal funding will go towards recovery efforts in the three most impacted counties, Merced, Sacramento, and Santa Cruz. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The White House says President Biden will be surveying the damage in California's central coast on Thursday. Biden will meet with first responders, visit affected towns, and assess what additional federal support is needed. Six people were shot and killed at a home in Goshen, California yesterday. The dead include a 17-year-old mother and a six-month-old baby. Authorities say the attack was targeted. They described it as a horrific massacre. Deputies responded to reports of multiple shots fired at around 4 in the morning. Here's more from the county sheriff. Actually, the report was they believed an active shooter uh, was in the area because of the number of rounds that were being fired. The whole situation is tragic. We have a 17-year-old mother and a 6-month-old child, both of which... uh, were shot in head. We have at least two suspects uh, at this point. Uh, we also believe that this is not a random act of violence. We believe that this was a targeted uh, family. We believe that there are gay associations that involved in this scene, as well as potential narcotics investigations. As of a week ago, we as the Sheriff's Office actually conducted uh, narcotics search warrants uh, at this residence. The two suspects have not been caught. The sheriff says he has information he hopes will lead to them, but he wasn't able to discuss at this point. Two of the slain were found in the street. A third was found in the doorway of the house. The other three were found inside the home. One man was still alive when police arrived. He later died at the hospital. A former GOP candidate has been arrested for his role in a string of shootings in New Mexico. Solomon Pena lost his race against incumbent State Representative Miguel Garcia. Police said out of anger over his defeat, Pena showed up uninvited at the homes of elected officials. He claimed to have papers that would prove his victory in the campaign. In early December and January, drive-by shootings occurred at the homes of two county commissioners and two state legislators. No one was injured, but in one case, three bullets went through the bedroom of a state lawmaker's 10-year-old daughter. And coming up, federal prosecutors dropped their case against a New York City police officer accused of spying for the Chinese Communist Party. We have that and more just after this break. Turning now to education, during the pandemic, public schools across the U.S. saw a significant drop in enrollment. This has led to financial challenges in big cities like Los Angeles and New York, where the mayor fears the decline could mean less federal resources. We hear some analysis on the reason for the shift away from public schools and how it may affect their funding. 
Joining us now is Walter Blanks, Jr. with the American Federation for Children. It's great to have you back on the show, Walter. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. About one and a half million less students enrolled in U.S. public schools in the fall of 2020. That's a 10-year low of about 50 million students. In your view, what is driving these numbers down? Well, the biggest thing is, like I always say, you uh, play ridiculous games, you win ridiculous prizes. And part of that was uh, due to the unions and them overplaying their hand and and forcing um, schools to to shut down and stay closed uh, during the pandemic. But really, the other big thing is just parents wanted something different, right? They realized that, at least for them and their perspective, that the public education system was putting out an inferior product. And so they wanted to put their child somewhere else, a place where they could truly thrive and and succeed. And I think now that's a result of the numbers that that we're seeing, the the public school decline and and the increase in enrollment in every other non-traditional public school option. Tell us about these other options and how are they doing? Yeah, so uh, the biggest one that we've seen coming out of the pandemic uh, has been homeschooling. Um, And we've seen during the pandemic, uh, homeschooling enrollment um, doubled. And uh, there's also uh, private school options uh, as well as charter schools. Charter school enrollment is um, right around upwards of 7% right now. You touch on homeschooling and also charter schools. How will the decrease in enrollment affect funding for these schools? And will public school students be able to get the resources they need? Yeah, well, I think the the, the big question is, um, you know, per pupil basis, right, how many students are going to be in these schools? Um, And I do anticipate uh, funding formulas changing. But like in Baltimore, where they get, you know, upwards of 30,000 per year per student, and they have some of the, the worst results in the country, I'm, I'm really hoping that, that public schools will take a step back and, and reevaluate um, what really, what it really means to educate a child and what they can do to improve it so that every child can, can thrive in, in that environment. At about the same time public school enrollment's falling, public schools gained over 1,200 counselors. Researchers show that a smaller ratio can lead to better academic performance with less disciplinary problems. So could this be a positive to the lower number of students? Yeah, absolutely. Smaller classroom sizes is definitely extremely beneficial for for every single child. And like you said, with counselors, you know, coming out of the pandemic, we've seen a lot of mental health issues and and social issues um, in our in our young children. And so that's super, super important. And so it's definitely a pivotal opportunity for the public education system to reevaluate how they operate. And, And I'm hoping that they'll come out on the other side better because of it. Yes, very important to get those mental health resources to the students. I want to get your reaction to this. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds is making a third attempt to allow taxpayer money to be put towards private school tuition. It could cost about a third of a billion dollars every year when it's fully phased in. What are the pros and cons of this? Well, the biggest pro is that people will be able to have mobility. Parents will be empowered. And Governor Kim Reynolds has been a massive champion for school choice and educational freedom. And if a child is in a school that is not the best for them, a parent now would have the ability to send them to to a private school or a school that fits them better based off of whatever learning needs they may have. In my opinion, that's that's a way better model than the current system where schools are just, you know, pumping, pumping, pumping um, a lot of dollars in and not getting a lot of results. And so being able to empower parents to to make that decision uh, is, is going to be great. And in the long run, we've seen in, in states where um, these programs have actually saved taxpayer dollars because you have, you know, you're sending kids to different schools where the, the requirement, the, the tuition is less, and they're actually performing better. It is interesting how you mentioned this could save taxpayer dollars. Walter Blanks, Jr. with the American Federation for Children, it is always a pleasure having your analysis. Thank you so much for having me.
A Texas brewery recently decided to cancel a fundraising event featuring Kyle Rittenhouse, the young man who shot and killed two people during a riot in Wisconsin. The case caught national media attention. Rittenhouse was found not guilty of murder after he argued he acted in self-defense. Rittenhouse was set to be the featured speaker at the Rally Against Censorship event on January 26th. Despite renting out the venue, Southern Star Brewing Company announced its decision to cancel the event in a post on Twitter, saying the event does not reflect its company values. Rittenhouse responded via Twitter, saying it's disappointing that places continue to censor his voice and others because they bend to the woke crowd. Defiance Press and Publishing said it is working to find a new venue to host its rally with Rittenhouse. San Francisco's Reparations Committee is proposing to give a lump sum of $5 million to each eligible black resident. They're also recommending other financial benefits like debt forgiveness and guaranteed incomes of $97,000 for at least 250 years. The draft put forth says to be eligible, the person must be 18 years old and have identified as black or African-American on public documents for at least 10 years. They must meet at least two of at least two of eight other criteria. That includes being born in San Francisco between 1940 and 1996, proof of residency in San Francisco for at least 13 years, being personally or the direct descendant of someone imprisoned for drugs, or being a descendant of someone enslaved before 1865. The Reparations Committee acknowledged that neither San Francisco nor California ever formally adopted slavery. They argue black residents were discriminated against and excluded from employment, education, and housing. The committee submitted its draft to the city last month. It will make its recommendations in June. Federal prosecutors in Brooklyn have dropped their case against a New York City police officer. He was accused of acting as a foreign agent on behalf of the Chinese regime. 33-year-old ethnic Tibetan and naturalized U.S. citizen Baimadaji Angwang was arrested in 2020. He was charged with acting as an illegal agent of Beijing, as well as committing wire fraud, making false statements, and obstructing an official proceeding. He faced up to 55 years in jail if found guilty, but federal prosecutors in New York filed a motion to dismiss the indictment, stating that an investigation led to additional information bearing on the charges. The indictment can only be dismissed once a federal judge signs the court order. Ang Wang served as a U.S. Army reservist and was granted a secret-level security clearance. Royal Caribbean says 17 migrants were taken aboard one of its cruise ships Saturday after it came across a small vessel that was adrift. The cruise ship Liberty of the Seas was on its way to the Bahamas at the time. A passenger says the captain announced they were diverting from their path to check on the vessel as required by maritime law. The passenger said the migrants were out at sea for 15 days and were waving, smiling and happy to be rescued. The cruise line says the crew safely brought them on board, provided them medical attention and they are working closely with the U.S. Coast Guard. Bahamian authorities are leading the investigation. Southwest Airlines is updating customers following its operations meltdown last month. The airline sent an email to customers Monday night outlining its recovery from the mountain of issues encountered during peak holiday travel. Southwest says it has returned virtually all of the bags and processed almost all refunds. It has also hired an aviation consulting firm to complete an assessment of the event and to make recommendations. 
The airline has budgeted more than $1 billion of its annual operating plan on improving and maintaining its IT systems. Southwest says it canceled more than 16,000 flights between December 21st and December 31st and lost between $725 million to $825 million in revenue. Officials in Connecticut are asking for the public's help finding a wrong-way driver who evaded a state trooper after hitting his police cruiser. It happened early Sunday on I-91 in Hartford and was caught on camera. The vehicle was in the northbound lane going south. Authorities say the trooper tried to position his cruiser so as to stop the vehicle. Instead of stopping, the driver struck the cruiser, kept driving, then exited the highway. And just ahead, China reported a population decline for the first time since the 1950s. It may no longer be the most populous country in the world. And China's new foreign minister wrapped up a visit to Africa, and a high-profile envoy for China's wolf warrior diplomacy has been sidelined. What does this signal? We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. We have more updates on the plane crash in Nepal on Sunday that killed at least 70 people. This was the worst air accident in Nepal in decades. And a warning, the following footage may be disturbing to some viewers. This video posted on social media captured the final moments before the Yeti Airlines flight crashed in Pokhara, Nepal on Sunday. Reuters was able to confirm the location in the video is Pokhara as buildings match satellite imagery. And earlier today, bodies of several victims arrived in Nepal's capital, Kathmandu. Authorities sent 48 bodies to a hospital in Kathmandu for autopsies. They were flown via helicopter from the crash site. Family members of the pilot of the downed flight were present at the hospital in Kathmandu, and 22 bodies were being handed over to families in Pokhara. So far, 70 bodies had been recovered. The plane carried 72 people. And over in Thailand, one person died and more were injured after a fire broke out on an oil tanker ship today. The ship was stationed southwest of the capital, Bangkok. Thai authorities reported that one person has been killed and at least 10 were injured. Rescuers are also searching for some who are missing. There were a total of 16 people on board. A live stream on social media showed thick smoke billowing from the ship. A loud blast was heard before the fire. Authorities said it's not yet clear what caused the blast. Most of the victims are welders from Burma, also known as Myanmar. The ship was undergoing repairs at the time of the blast. Now some updates from China. How is the COVID-19 outbreak affecting its military? And the White House says it will punish Chinese tourists faking COVID-19 test results. Entity's Tiffany Meyer has more. An update on China's COVID-19 outbreak and how it's hitting the country's military. Related information is under strict control in China, meaning news about what's happening is limited and difficult to access. But the official newspaper of the PLA, or People's Liberation Army, shed some light on the situation in an article published Monday. The story calls it necessary to, quote, systematically solve the problems of epidemic prevention, quarantine, and treatments further adding that the army should minimize the impact of the pandemic on its ranks. Just how big is that impact? The article doesn't say, 
But last month, Radio Free Asia quoted an insider as saying army members in Baoding City got infected and that the situation was spiraling out of control. The city of Baoding holds military importance for China. And at the same time, the city seemed to be fighting a major outbreak. Residents there have started posting photos or messages about the situation, saying they or their friends and families have been sickened. The U.S. will penalize Chinese inbound travelers should they provide fraudulent COVID-19 test results. That's according to a senior advisor for the White House COVID response team. During an interview with VOA, Dr. Nahid Badalia clarified the consequences. She said activities like providing inaccurate or misleading information to the government can be subject to criminal offense charges. Her warning is based on the travel restriction order the CDC placed on Chinese tourists earlier this month. According to a screenshot from Chinese social media that was later posted on Twitter, a Chinese passenger managed to arrive in Russia despite testing positive for the virus. The person revealed that he, quote, filled in the real information. Then airport staff asked him to change it and select no to all questions. At a time when the world is watching China's pandemic losses, the country has announced its first population decline in decades. The National Bureau of Statistics reported Tuesday that the country had 850,000 fewer people at the end of 2022 than the previous year. That left a total of just over 1.4 billion people with 9.5 million births against 10.4 million deaths. It wasn't immediately clear if the population figures have been affected by the COVID-19 outbreak, but experts find China's statistics not reliable. Yi Fuxian is a demographer and expert on Chinese population trends at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Based on his research, he said China's population has actually been declining since 2018. According to Yi, China's real demographic crisis is beyond imagination, and all of China's past economic, social, defense, and foreign policies were based on faulty demographic data. The last time China recorded a population decline was during the so-called Great Leap Forward movement. It was a disastrous drive launched by Mao at the end of the 1950s for collective farming and industrialization. It produced a massive famine, killing tens of millions of people. Since abandoning the strict one-child policy in 2016, China has sought to encourage families to have second or even third children, but with little success. China's chief wolf warrior diplomat is sidelined. Does it show a softening of Beijing's diplomacy? And a Chinese foreign minister wraps up a visit to Africa with a stop in Cairo, touting China-Egypt relations. This while U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen preps for her own trip to Africa. Entity's Tiffany Meyer has the story. China's foreign minister is wrapping up his five-country Africa tour. Cairo marked his last stop on Sunday, where he said Egypt and China held strong strategic mutual trust. We will communicate and coordinate with the Egyptian side on bilateral relations and international and regional issues of common concern and promote the new and greater development of China-Egypt relations. For more than three decades, China's foreign ministers have started their terms by visiting Africa. China has been Africa's largest trading partner for 13 years. Mutual trade is expected to top $260 billion in 2022. Beijing has also heavily invested in and loaned out funds for infrastructure in African countries through its Belt and Road Initiative.
Experts say Beijing wants a foothold in Africa through seizing control of infrastructure when nations are unable to pay back their Chinese loans, allowing its military greater global access. On the western side, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is gearing up for a visit to Senegal, Zambia and South Africa. The U.S. is now working to strengthen ties on the continent and offer nations there an alternative to dealing with Beijing. China's chief wolf warrior diplomat sidelined. He was the country's foreign minister spokesman and a vocal defender of Beijing's zero COVID-19 policy. But now he's getting demoted. According to China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Zhao Lijian is now the deputy of the Department of Border and Maritime Affairs. It's a position on the same level as spokesman in China's communist system, but carries far less importance. For three years, Zhao served as a high-profile envoy of the regime's so-called wolf warrior policy. The term is used to describe Beijing's confrontational, combative brand of diplomacy. Here's how Beijing wields the technique. When the pandemic broke out in 2020 inside China, Zhao suggested on Twitter that it was possible the U.S. military had brought the virus to Wuhan. What's more, one of the most well-known episodes struck in later 2021, when Zhao touted China's fight against COVID-19 while speaking to foreign journalists. You must have been laughing up your sleeves being able to live in China during the pandemic. The expression refers to when someone is pleased with their situation but keeps their pride over it to themselves. Some say Zhao's oust as ministry chief signals a softening of Beijing's wolf warrior policy, especially following last month's mass anti-lockdown protests. An Australian-based historian commented, for people like Zhao, the CCP uses them when they're useful and casts them aside like a worn-out shoe when they're not. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will meet Chinese Vice Premier Liu He in Zurich, Switzerland this week. They'll discuss economic development and increase communication on economic issues. The move follows a November pledge by President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping to improve ties amid heightened tensions. The meeting also highlights a growing competition for influence in Africa. Yellen is to visit three African nations immediately after the meeting. The Chinese foreign minister is just coming off his own tour of Africa. China has been Africa's largest trading partner for over 10 years, but the predatory investment methods used by the Chinese regime have caused many countries in Africa to seek alternatives. Biden pledged in December that the United States would invest $15 billion in two-way trade and investment deals in Africa. South Korean President Moon Suk-yeol said on Monday that a return to nuclear power is necessary. This to meet his nation's efforts to be carbon neutral by 2050. Yoon made the comments at a summit in the United Arab Emirates. The country's leader, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, was in attendance. Yoon underlined Seoul's commitment to nuclear power as it works to finish the Arabian Peninsula's first atomic power plant. That could see South Korea in line for lucrative maintenance contracts and future projects in the UAE. Seoul has grown closer to the country in recent years. Yoon's predecessor, President Moon Jae-in, sought to move South Korea away from nuclear power. This amidst safety and graft scandals and Japan's 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster. 
Korea has also declared its 2050 carbon neutrality goal. To achieve this goal, we are working to rapidly restore the nuclear power system, which supplies carbon-free electricity and boost the supply of clean energy such as renewable energy and hydrogen energy. The $20 billion Barak nuclear power plant is Seoul's first attempt to build atomic reactors abroad. It will one day account for nearly a quarter of all the Emirates' power needs. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Coming up, Russia announces plans to shake up its military structure. They say this is necessary due to the war in Ukraine. And the British government proposes to give police more clarity on how and when they can act to stop seriously disruptive protests. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Now zooming in on the war in Ukraine, Russia says it's planning to make major changes to its military. They will shake up their military structure from 2023 to 2026. To create two new combined arms, strategic and territorial amalgamations of the armed forces, that is, Moscow and Leningrad military districts, as well as self-contained task forces on the territories of the new entities of the Russian Federation. There will be administrative reforms, such as the recreation of the Moscow and Leningrad military districts. Russia's defense ministry said this would strengthen the combat capabilities of their naval, aerospace, and strategic missile forces. The defense minister said the changes are necessary to protect new entities and critical facilities of the Russian Federation. The Kremlin also added that the changes were needed because the West has been conducting a proxy war in Ukraine. The Russian military has made numerous changes to its leadership in the 11 months since the war began in Ukraine. Ukrainian presidential advisor Alexei Arestovich handed in his resignation today. This after causing a public outcry by suggesting a Russian missile that killed at least 44 people in the city of Dnipro had been shot down by Ukraine. Rescuers are still searching for bodies in the rubble of a block of flats in the city. The Ukrainian Air Force says it was hit by a Russian KH-22 missile on Saturday. Arestovich said it appeared that the Russian missile had fallen on the building after being shot down by Ukrainian air defenses. The comment deviated from the official Ukrainian account, causing widespread anger in Ukraine. It was also noticed by Russian authorities who appeared to allude to him when they blamed Kyiv for the strike. Arestovich later backtracked on his comments, citing fatigue. Ukraine says the KH-22 missile is inaccurate and that it lacks the equipment to shoot it down. The UK has become the first NATO member to supply Ukraine with Western-made battle tanks. Although the pledge of 14 Challenger 2 tanks appears modest, Ukrainian officials expect it will encourage other Western nations to supply more advanced weapons. Germany especially is now under pressure to allow the export of the Leopard 2 battle tanks to Ukraine. As fighting continues in eastern Ukraine, the United Kingdom's government has confirmed that it will be the first NATO country to supply its ally with Western tanks. A squadron of 14 tanks called the Challenger 2 will deploy to the conflict in the coming weeks. But what is the Challenger 2 and what kind of impact can it have on the war? 
The Challenger 2 is what's called a main battle tank, or MBT, and it's specifically designed to attack other tanks and armored vehicles, seen here during NATO exercises two years ago. Until now, Ukraine's military has primarily relied on its older Soviet-era tanks. It's also captured and repurposed some of Russia's during the invasion. President Zelensky has long pleaded with allied countries to include their tanks in aid packages, but some Western officials have been cautious over the concern that Russia or even China could get their hands on advanced Western military technology. Moscow is also likely to see the introduction of Western tanks onto the battlefield as an escalation of the war, and NATO is desperate not to be drawn more directly into it. The Challenger 2 has been in service with the British Army since 1994 and has been deployed to Bosnia, Iraq, and other crises. The UK's gift could put added pressure on other NATO countries, particularly the US and Germany, to give their own tanks, which have so far resisted. Along with the Challenger 2, Britain's also giving Ukraine about 30 artillery vehicles called the AS-90. It will take time to train the Ukrainian forces on how to use the British tanks and artillery, and Russia's London embassy is dismissing the development. The embassy says the challengers are unlikely to turn the tide of the war, will drag it out, and will be targeted by Russia's own forces. A shipload of U.S. military hardware arrived in the Danish port of Aarhus on Monday. It's in preparation for a series of training exercises across NATO's eastern frontier countries. The U.S. Army's 2nd Armored Brigade Combat Team, 1st Cavalry Division, is arriving in Europe for a nine-month rotation. The division from Fort Hood, Texas, will take part in a NATO operation called Atlantic Resolve, which the Army says provides rotational developments of combat-credible forces to Europe. Shipments of military hardware also arrived last week at the port of Lissingen in the Netherlands. Police in the U.K. may be given additional powers to tackle seriously disruptive protests, such as when activists glue themselves to roads. Under the proposed changes, Downing Street said police would not need to wait for disruption to take place and could shut down demonstrations before they escalate. Human rights groups, however, say this amounts to an attack on the right to protest. More on this from NTD's Malcolm Hudson. Disruptive protests like those of Just Stop Oil activists gluing themselves to roads may be tackled sooner under a newly proposed amendment to the Public Order Bill. The change would broaden the legal definition of what serious disruption is and give police more scope to intervene quickly. Downing Street says that under the proposed changes, police would not need to wait for disruption to take place. They could shut down demonstrations before they escalate. Human rights group Liberty said the plan amounted to an attack on the right to protest. Their director, Martha Spurrier, said, Allowing the police to shut down protests before any disruption has taken place simply on the off chance that it might sets a dangerous precedent. Meanwhile, Met Police Commissioner Sir Mark Rowley gave his backing to the proposals. He said the police are getting drawn into complex legal arguments about balancing the rights to protest and the rights of others to go about their daily lives freely and said, Clarity will create a clearer line for the police to enforce when protests impact upon others who simply wish to go about their lawful business. The Public Order Bill is aimed at curbing guerrilla tactics used by groups like Insulate Britain and Extinction Rebellion. Number 10 said police would not need to treat a series of protests by the same group as standalone incidents, 
but would be able to consider their total impact. Officers would be able to take into consideration long-running campaigns designed to cause repeat disruption over a period of days or weeks. The bill is currently undergoing line-by-line scrutiny in the House of Lords, which will be tasked with debating the amendment at the end of this month. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. In the UK, Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack said yesterday the government will block a Scottish bill that makes it easier for people to change their legal gender. It's the first time the British government has invoked the power to veto a Scottish law. Some women's rights campaigners have argued the changes could pose a threat to the safety of women and girls by making it easier for predatory men to access single-sex spaces such as bathrooms. Supporters of the bill, however, said the measures pose no threat to women's rights. Ministers are concerned the bill will conflict with equalities legislation. The Scottish government is expected to contest the move in court. The wave of walkouts in the UK are set to continue this week. Members of the Royal College of Nursing across England will walk out on Wednesday and Thursday. Environment agency workers also plan to strike on Wednesday in a dispute over pay. Ambulance staff will strike on the 23rd of the month. GMB union leaders met to decide whether to call more strikes among their ambulance workers, with a decision on that expected later this week. National Health Service physiotherapy staff are also due to walk out this month, and the Trades Union Congress is organizing a series of protests in February against the government's planned laws on strikes. The legislation aims to ensure minimum levels of service during strikes. It had its second reading in Parliament yesterday, and teachers in England and Wales yesterday voted for seven days of walkouts in February and March. And still to come, Russians head to second-hand shops amid the departure of Western brands. Customers can find items in stock that would take months to order new. And a cold snap moves through the coldest city on Earth. How do the people there survive the freezing temperatures? Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. Amid the departure of Western brands and surging prices, Russians are heading to second-hand shops. Some are becoming more popular than large shopping malls. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details. Russian shop Golika Style sells women's clothes, shoes, and accessories. The store mainly offers American and European brands. People are handing over sneakers by Hugo Boss, Massimo Dutti, Armani. We have lots of Armani in our shop, by the way. Right now, the delivery time for orders from abroad may take months, but similar products are in stock at secondhand shops. You know, you come to us and we have everything in stock. But if you want to order from a foreign brand, you have to order from abroad. So you need to wait two to three months, sometimes even longer. And we have everything in stock. Come, look, and buy. So the demand is high, of course. The shop commission ranges from 13 to $60 per item. Almost half of the products are new, with the price tag still on, from buyers who didn't like them. Nowadays, these small shops are becoming more popular than big shopping malls. We used to shop at big stores and malls, 
but now it makes no sense to go shopping there only for one or two departments. It's not interesting. When I come by here, I know that there is a wide variety here, and I can always find something for myself. Yulia Maslakova runs a shop for used children's clothes and toys. She says the popularity of second-hand shops is growing because of financial pressures. As far as I understand, people are now earning less and they are trying to make money in every possible way. Russian consumers are continuing to feel the pressure from Western sanctions following the country's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. An unusual temperature drop in the coldest city on Earth. Let's take a look at how people there are fending off the extreme weather. Frozen streets, misty air, snow-bent tree branches. This is Yakutsk, a Siberian city known as the coldest on Earth. I think it's at least minus 58 now. It was minus 56 yesterday, and it felt a bit warmer. I think so, at least. The temperature here plummeted last weekend amid an unusually long cold snap. Residents had to wrap themselves up tightly when going out. You can't fight with frost. You either adjust and dress accordingly or you suffer and drive a car. It's quite simple, actually. I have two mittens, two scarves, warm shoes are a must, and you need to cover your head. This is all very important. This mining town is situated on permafrost more than 3,000 miles east of Moscow. Locals often see the thermometer drop below minus 40 degrees. You don't feel this frost in a city. Or maybe it's just a brain that prepares you for it and says to you everything is normal. Falling temperatures have also hit the farmer's market in the city. Our farmer's market is the coldest market in the world. Stallholders said there's no recipe for dealing with the cold. It is very cold today. I think it's minus 60. Very cold. We are freezing. But thanks to the customers, we are on the move. So we warm up this way. Just dress warmly in layers like a cabbage. But there's at least one good thing that comes from the cold. Frozen fish sellers don't need a fridge or freezer anymore. Still to come, for the first time, Cuba's national baseball team includes major league players who emigrated from the country. The team prepares for the World Baseball Classic. And driving and drifting on ice, a team-building activity for German soccer players. We'll be back with more soon here on MTD News. Cuba is gearing up for the World Baseball Classic. This year, players who fled the island are allowed to join the team. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the story. For the first time, the Cuban national baseball team includes players who left the country. The roster includes several players from Major League Baseball. For decades, they were banned from joining. That's something positive. The players are very happy and very motivated to go to the Classic. I think it's something good, and it's going to be very positive for us. They are going to help us a lot on and off the field. I think it's going to be something important for us. MLB players on the team include 2020 Gold Glove winner Luis Robert and Johan Moncada of the Chicago White Sox, as well as Andy Ibanez of the Detroit Tigers. Kansas City Royals' Ronald Bolaños and Luis Miguel Romero of the Oakland Athletics are also on the roster. Cuban baseball has struggled in recent years. More than 600 Cuban players have defected to the United States, 
so the small island nation has decided to bolster its roster with major league players. It's the first time and I'm very happy because they are from the major leagues in the world and we can learn a lot from them. And above all, they are teammates that we played with in Cuba. I myself played with Team Cuba with them when we were juniors. We went on a tour with Luis Robert and I'm very excited to play with him again here in Team Cuba. Cuba won gold medals in baseball at the 1992 Barcelona, 1996 Atlanta, and 2004 Athens Olympics. They will play against the Netherlands in the opening game of the World Classic in Taiwan on March 8th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And talking about baseball, thousands of people have signed a petition to save an iconic baseball stadium in Tokyo, Japan. It's a stadium where Babe Ruth once played. The Meiji Jingu Stadium opened in 1926. It's often compared to legendary U.S. baseball venues Wrigley Field and Fenway Park, but it's slated to be torn down and rebuilt in a massive redevelopment project. Robert Whiting, who has written books on Japanese baseball, started an online petition to save the stadium from being torn down. As of today, his petition has gathered more than 10,000 signatures. It's addressed to the governor of Tokyo and several others. Driving on ice, Bayern Munich players struggle not to drift in a team-building activity. The team is having fun before their return to the pitch after the winter break. Team members poked fun at each other while struggling to handle their cars in the icy course. The event was held in the mountains in the heart of the Alps. The region is known as a wonderland in winter. Players there were tasked with safety, safely accelerating and braking on the ice while trying to make the car drift around the Bayern logo. One player said it was a good way to bring the team together. Bayern's first game after the winter break will be away at RB Leipzig this Friday. While enduring a long winter, you look forward to warmer days, only to find your nose starts running with allergies. Is there a way naturally to combat this problem? Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Warmer days are here now with their gentle breezes and beautiful flowers. But wait, your nose also starts its annual run of sneezing and congestion. Then your eyes join in getting itchy from allergies. The allergens include pollens, pet dander and dust. Can we fix this naturally without resorting to drugs? Absolutely. Start by trying to eat fewer processed foods, foods that are sugar-laden, refined and packed with preservatives. These are regarded as inflammatory foods. Replace them with anti-inflammatory foods, whole and mostly plant-based. They provide many health benefits, including protection against allergic diseases. Let's start with onions, broccoli and grapes. These all contain quercetin. It's an antioxidant-rich flavonoid that issues an immune boost. It acts as an anti-inflammatory agent, and the good news is it has no side effects. You can also find it in apples, berries, and wine. Let's look now at citrus, peppers, and potatoes. Foods high in vitamin C are effective against allergic reactions as an antihistamine and antioxidant. Vitamin C supports the immune system and protects the cells from harmful free radicals. In research, vitamin C also proved itself effective against allergic symptoms too. You can also add strawberries and Brussels sprouts to this list. Next is kefir, kombucha and kimchi. Probiotics are a mixture of live bacteria or yeast within the body keeping us healthy. 
Probiotics stimulate the immune system and help reduce allergic suffering. Probiotics get us back on track faster with no side effects. You can find probiotics in fermented foods like yogurt, sauerkraut and miso. And finally, salmon, seeds and plant oils. Those magic omega-3 fatty acids can ease allergic symptoms. Growing evidence and research supports their beneficial effects against chronic inflammatory diseases. You can find omega-3s in cold water fatty fish like mackerel, sardines, trout and tuna. You can also find it in walnuts, flax seeds and their oils. And don't forget about cod liver oil. It's an oldie but a goodie. To get an allergy fighting boost, eat well. Over in the UK, the iconic Tower Ballroom in Blackpool, England is getting its annual cleaning. Staff have to clean 14 giant chandeliers hanging from the roof of the building. The chandeliers have a total of 1,120 lights. As part of the process, they all have to be cleaned and inspected individually by hand. And this has been taking place annually since the ballroom opened 124 years ago. Even to get near the chandeliers, staff have to suspend them down from the roof. Lowering the chandeliers is also no easy task, so the process is slow and drawn out. Once they're down here, the cleaning process will start, which takes a few weeks. And we don't use chemicals or anything like that, just microfiber cloth um, and some warm water and dusters. You know, we just take the time um, to get this done. We don't want to rush the process. The ballroom itself has hosted many dance shows, and some of the most recognizable performers in the world have taken to its wooden floors. During the cleaning process, there is a high risk of accidental damage to the chandeliers. The crystals are hand-cut from Italy, and they are incredibly fragile. But the cleaning team says that fortunately, no one has made any mistakes. The ballroom opened in 1899 and regularly hosts the BBC series Strictly Come Dancing. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.